Today's episode of Undesign comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders past, present and emerging. Are you enjoying Undesign? Then take two minutes to vote for us in the 2021 People's Choice Podcast Awards. We'd really appreciate it. It'll help us continue to make this podcast and reach new audiences. To vote, go to podcastawards.com and click on the big blue button for nominations voting. We're under the Society and Culture category. Again, that's podcastawards.com and we're in the Society and Culture category. Thanks. Now let's get into this week's episode. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky boy. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Undesign. I'm your host, Costa, and thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's wicked problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand that we all have so much we can bring to these big challenges. So listen in and see where you fit in the solution as we go on to undesign the concepts of racial justice, online activism, and active allyship. It's been almost a year since our social media feeds were filled with black tiles in response to the death of George Floyd. And more recently, other people of colour as a result of racially motivated violence. At once, that little black tile represented so many things to so many people. In fact, it felt like that more so during a time of social isolation, political protest, and cultural unrest. And while not the first or the last polarizing expression of one's beliefs in the name of a social cause, our collective act to share or not share a black tile on social media was certainly a flashpoint of sorts. All of a sudden, these little black tiles became black mirrors that reflected something back that was quite different to anyone looking into them. To individuals, It was at once one person's first ever political expression on their social media and another's reminder of how easy it is to upload a photo and do nothing more. To companies, it was as much an opportunity for them to step into corporate social responsibility as it was a reckoning for those companies whose sentiments have not matched their past actions. To society at large, it was a seemingly lifelong struggle to reckon with questions about what it really means to be anti-racist And who should be doing what in the name of making society more fair for everyone? Joining us to untangle this massive issue on today's episode of Undesign is our guest, Fudzi Wande. Fudzi is a diversity and inclusion strategist and social justice advocate, and she is currently the Senior Program Officer for Diversity and Inclusion at the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. She's also the founding director of the Wande Group, a consultancy and program development organization which extends this work. Fudzi gives us some amazing tools from analogies to personal stories you can share with others that help us rethink concepts like racial equality, diversity, and equality, which helps us reassess our own attachment to these issues. And not only that, we don't just talk about the importance of protesting injustice in the streets or carefully selecting what piece of content to put up on your social media as a show of solidarity. We also talk about the importance of fighting for racial justice in the everyday. If anything becomes clear from this conversation, it's that the battlefronts for racial justice exist in all aspects of life. So take the time to think about where you can bring the fight. From your perspective, you know, working in diversity and inclusion, has anything changed since 
you know, since all the unrest of last mm. year, whether it's George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, as we're seeing now uh, more recently with, um, you know, the shootings of the uh, um, in Atlanta of yep. eight Asian women. Yep. Is that yep. right? Yeah. What's how has the last year looked from your perspective in that way? I think for me to answer that, I'm going to um, sort of like just recap on, you know, the last 12 months and just set an understanding of what we're actually talking about. So, yes, you know, the last 12 months, we've seen a lot of social disruptions, Black Lives Matter, COVID. Um, and so the world, as we thought we knew it, changed. But if we think about the events that happened, there's nothing new in the things that were happening. So we've had uh, pandemics before. We have had, um, you know, a lot of activism. We've, we've seen it with marriage equality. We saw it with Me Too. We saw it in the civil rights era. Mm. So the actual movement in terms of mobilizing people um, for collective activism, that was not new. And the killings were not new. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, African-Americans will tell you that this is something they've been talking about for generations. Pretty much, you know, from the time of slavery, you know, they've been, they're being killed. So that in itself wasn't new. What I think, in my opinion, tipped it is we actually saw white voices right. now taking a stand and that's when people started paying attention mm. and i feel like that collective activism of everyone finally coming together and saying racism is wrong is why it became such a big movement because black lives matter as an organization has been there for some it's time been for right? A while, right yeah and so i think that's what what tipped it um and then you know coupled with the fact that we're all forced to be at home and, you know, I don't know about you, but last year for me made me realize that there's a lot of things that I, you know, that I was doing that were not really important in the grand scheme of things. You know, people started, you know, passing away. There was a lot of trauma mm. to last year. And it made you, for, you know, it, it made you just start considering, have I spoken to the people that really matter? Yeah. We were working from home and, you know, you, you have more time to reflect on the things that are important. And when all the activities that fill your day are taken away and you're left with, if you've got somebody that you live with, a person or a TV screen or, hello, Zoom, um, mm. as a companion, you then realize just what fills your day. Yeah. So we had all of that happening. And then we had, you know, in the backdrop of all of this. So I think it was big in terms of forcing uh, forcing us to really consider the things that are important. And I think COVID was an equalizer in the sense that it wasn't about black, white, Asian. It You know, there was nothing like that. Everybody was impacted. Mm. And yes, um, you know, there's some groups that are, I guess, uh, impacted more, um, you know, disproportionately and all. But in terms of contracting it, um, it was across the it's board. It's indiscriminate. Right. And people were losing jobs and everyone was impacted because we saw a lot of disruption in the workplace. So I think, you know, with that backdrop, then we go to the issues that last year raised. And I would like to start by, let's just define what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, please. Right? That was my next question. Yeah, great. Um, so obviously what happened last year is in the diversity and inclusion space, there was a lot of um, 
emphasis on it. You know, people started, you know, looking for, I think in terms of uh, jobs, there were so many jobs, um, you know, that were made available um, during last year. But I, I want to start by defining so that we're all clear on what we're talking about. So I always like to um, describe diversity and inclusion um, in the process of baking a cake, right? Okay. Now, I'm not a baker, so if I butcher the Neither process of baking, <laughs> you have to forgive me. Sure. But when you're baking a cake, you have your ingredients. So you've got your flour, you've got your eggs, sugar, milk, butter, and whatever else you know you want to put in, depending on the cake you want. And, and for me, those ingredients, that represents diversity. All the things that make us different. Mm -hmm. Diversity is about difference. It's not about sameness. So in its very definition, diversity is the things that make us different. What is the unique features that we all kind of have? So it's all about difference. Inclusion is getting that mix right. So if we think about the analogy of baking the cake, when we then mix the flour, eggs, and all of that together, to me, that's the inclusion bit. That's including everyone, okay. you know, so yep. that they're part of whatever process. But the end product, the cake itself, is belonging because everyone needs to feel a sense of belonging. And I think that for too long, within our organization, within mm. our communities, we focus on diversity being the destination. Right. And it's just the start, right? That's just the ingredients. And one of the things that you often hear in the language of diversity and inclusion is equity and equality. Why can't we treat people equally or equitably? And then there's a lot of confusion on what's the difference between equality and equity. So first of all, when we think about equality and equity, using my analogy of baking a cake, yep. if we are to say equality, then we would be saying that we treat all the ingredients the same, mm. right? That's mm. what equality means. Yep. But, you know, both you and I are based in Perth, Australia. So think of putting butter and milk in the pantry on a hot Perth day. Mm. What is going to happen to that? That's going to melt. Right. The butter is going <laughs> to melt. And the milk is going to curdle. It's yeah. going to go off. So we put them in the fridge. Now, does that mean that the milk and the butter are more important than the flour and the eggs? I should think not. No, no. they're not. But they're just different characteristics. And so we put them in the fridge. Mm. To me, that's the equity. That is right. looking at the ingredient and saying, okay, this has to go in the fridge. Um, we can't just throw the eggs around anyhow because they're going to crack. Yep. So we'll put them in a, you know, in a casing or an egg box or whatever it is, right? Um, but we're not saying that they're not equal. Mm. What we're saying is we just have to treat them equitably. And so if we think about us as a community, if we think about diverse groups of people, we're not saying one group is more important than the other. What we're saying is historically, there's some groups that have been disadvantaged and we just need to understand how we can treat those groups so that we can get the equality that we want at the end of the day. Yep. And I think this is where we start to um, you know, see certain people feel uh, or, or as I call it, we start to get into diversity hierarchy right. where, you know, because of the systemic stuff that we've seen and the social norms, mm. we start to see certain groups 
um, have more advantages or more privileges than others. And so I think when we correctly define what we're talking about, we then are able to, first of all, we need to diagnose what the problem is and then we can start to deal with it. And I think that as a society, we haven't really defined what the problem is Mm. because, um, you know, in my work, so while we're talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter, because that was a huge thing, diversity and inclusion, you know, these are buzzwords. And we've seen a lot of movement. First of all, it was like a huge focus on women and gender, and it still is, right? Yeah. Now, the thing about that is, historically, we, we can see and we know, and research has already shown the benefits of diversity and inclusion. And we know that if we look at, you know, the historical context women have been left out of certain places and all of that stuff, right? Mm. The only problem is if we don't understand the intersectionality, if we don't understand that Fadzi, as a black woman, um, when I hear this gender conversation where it's tended to focus on how can we get more women in decision-making um, you know, positions, how can we get them on boards or mm. how can we get them uh, directorships, that is a conversation I don't necessarily see myself in right i don't feel that it represents where i'm at i'm coming into the conversation with this notion is do you see me do you see me as a black woman Mm. um do you see fudzy or do you see black fudzy you know like what are you seeing Mm. i don't care about the board and the directorship when i am coming into the conversation i just want to be seen i want people to treat me um, that I that I have a brain, mm. I am able to think and not make assumptions about you know who I am. And for a lot of um, you know uh, women, uh, ad- indigenous women, people with dis- you know women with disabilities, trans women, it's the conversation for us is more on we need to, you to get past the diversity, the ten percent of what you think you know about us, mm. which is the visible aspect. Yes, to understand how we think you know, what, what we like and just know a little bit more on us. So I think sometimes the way we pitch the conversations mm. is exclusive in nature. Right. I'm picking up on things of erasure here in some ways yeah. where when we fail to be intersectional, we end up erasing very large parts of anyone's identity, particularly historically oppressed yeah. groups. And so part of that, what what I feel is missing in the conversation there is that while in certain stru- social structures, you know, certain people benefit um, as a result of just kind of being seen as the default, mm. um, we are actually all harmed by that mode of thinking, even those who are in privilege in some ways. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah. And I mean, if you think about diversity and like what you're talking about, mm. if I had a room of people and I said to and I asked a, a few questions, first question would be, how many of you got to choose what color skin you were born in? Mm. Stand up. Nobody would stand up, I'm assuming, right? Right. And it's never happened. If I got if I asked them choose how many of you chose who your parents were? Mm. No one stands up. How many of you got to choose what nationality you were born in? Um no one would be able to answer. And then if I said, "Okay, what about sex before you were born? Were you able to decide?" what sex you came into the world. Yep. Um, nobody has ever stood up when I've asked those questions. And so I'm like, okay, it's interesting that when we think about diversity, none of us have actually any control, right? Correct. We don't get to choose it. 
And the world is diverse, whether we like it or whether not. Whether we like it or not. But it is the cause of so much social disruption, discrimination, prejudice, you name it. Mm. Wars have started over things that we have no control. Yep. If I flip that costa and then i say okay so we're all in agreement that we couldn't choose the color of skin our nationality all of that then can people choose their privilege mm. just like they don't get to choose the diversity that they come into the world um they don't get to choose the privilege right but we do hit them over the head with a baton and at the moment um the people that are getting the brunt of it is white men right now i'm not saying that they shouldn't use their positions of privilege, mm. to, you know, in a equitable way, in a way, in a responsive way where it's like, okay, how can I create opportunities for people? Mm. Most definitely. But we have to understand that they didn't choose the privilege, yes. right? And if we're talking about creating an inclusive environment, it includes those voices. We can't, we can't say we're going to exclude this voice and truly have an inclusive you know, environment, community, or workplace. Mm. We have to make sure that every voice is heard. What we should be asking ourselves is, how can we move forward by allowing every voice to participate in mm. a conversation that is going to create the outcome that we want? Because your cake analogy is really apt there in that what you're speaking to, because when you were talking about what equity and diversity actually means, diversity, like you said, is defined by difference. Equity is defined by, would you say that equity is defined by what needs are present as a result of those differences? So if you think about it, I think equality is treating people the same regardless of their difference. Yep. Equity is treating people differently because of their difference. Difference, right. Right, yes. because you understand. So it's considering, like you say, that we are different. And then, okay, now that we know that we're different and there's nothing wrong with it, um, what opportunities does Costa need? Because mm. Costa might not need the same opportunities yeah. that I'm giving to this person. Course. Because at the end of the day, we want an equal outcome. But an equal outcome might mean that we are doing different things for different people. Correct. Right? So like I was t talking about, me as a black woman, when people were talking about, you know, you know, gender equality, equality framing it about, you know, getting more women on senior management, mm. I was still sending out applications just wanting to be employed. Right. So for me, I was like, if you want if gender equality for me meant that I could apply and people would at least offer me a job. That That's, that's all the, I was thinking. Yeah. So when I was going into these conversations, um, you know, it's no it's no wonder that I thought, well, this conversation is for white women because mm. those are the only women that I'm seeing at the top anyway. I'm not seeing women who look like me. Yeah. Um, and so I'm switching off because I'm like, well, I don't see how I fit into this I conversation. I don't see myself in this right? conversation. But, and this is where I think we have to really think about equity in the sense that everything that we're fighting for, um, there's always a subgroup. So if we're talking about gender equality, we have to recognize that they're marginalized women, even within that conversation. Are we including them? Are we considering what their needs might be yeah. to move forward? And I think, um, you know, if you think about, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent and I've got, you know, two boys 
who are completely different in character, in nature, in the things that they like. Um, and, you know, same mom, same dad, same household, but they're different. And so there's certain things that I'm going to do with one child that I won't do with another. I don't love them any differently. Yep. I love them the same um, because they're my kids, but I have an understanding of who they are. Mm. And I think for me, that's equity. It's just like, you know, sometimes what we want to give people or what we think they need, they don't need that. Mm. And we need to stop talking on behalf of other people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was just reflecting as you were speaking um, because I feel like the way we talk about equality, it, it, like it flattens the playing field too much, so to speak. But what equality should be speaking to is our inherent worth as human beings. We are all equal in terms of our inherent just right to exist, right? And equity is about making sure that there are systems in place for people to realize their full potential, you know, as a result of their needs or, uh, you know, as a result of their differences or whatever those could be. Is that a fair way of putting it? Where equity is around structures to make things feasible for people with different needs and equality is just about everyone is of equal value as people mm -hmm. doesn't mean our opinions are necessarily yeah. the same it's not about false equivalence it's just that we have the right to exist in the way that we feel we should exist or yeah. we feel we are and it's it's interesting because you know i've often tried to consider what comes first equality or equity sure yeah um and i feel like we can't really have equality without equity, equity. right we have to in order for us to get equality, mm. we have to have the equity bit. We yeah. have to get to a place where um, everyone is given the same measure of opportunity um, in the same way in order for them to come out. And that might look different for different people, mm. but I think you're absolutely right. And it's just a matter of, once again, how we define things and how we have an understanding. Because what we have to do is we have to first of all, define the landscape in which we're dealing in, yeah. right? So we have a lot of things now where we're trying to fix stuff, but we haven't even defined the problem. Right. And it's almost like going into a hospital. I know today I'm just full of analogies. But <laughs> no, it's great. I'm just like, you, you go to the emergency room and you see a triage nurse and they first of all try and define, they'll ask you symptoms and all, just so they can help the doctor to be able to give you a diagnosis. Once you have the diagnosis, once you've seen the doctor, you're then given a treatment, whether it's medicine or whatever it is that, you know, but they can't treat you before they diagnose you. And we are trying to treat a, a problem when we haven't defined it because there's an unwillingness from what I see, mm. for us to face the past. Yep. Okay. And the past is ugly, but it is the past. And it's not to say that looking at that and defining the problem doesn't mean we won't get a solution. Mm. But we have to be able to correctly define it and understand that when you go into a hospital in an emergency, people are not presenting the same symptoms. Yes. So there's going to be different treatment. Some people are going to need a bit longer to, you know, to understand, we can't tell, I can't tell you, um, I'm giving you two days to heal. No doctor tells that to a patient yeah. and says, I'm putting a time limit on your healing or, you know, whatever it is you need. They diagnose and then they work with you until you're better. Right. But what we do 
from a social perspective is we have these issues and we're trying to tell people that you need to get on with it, forget about this and just move forward. Mm. And I think that's a bit unfair because if we're talking about equity as well, we have to recognize that some people in certain situations are impacted more. And the interesting thing is if we go back to last year and what COVID did, yeah. there was a lot of empathy during COVID empathy towards business owners, empathy towards people. Um, you know, you, you saw globally how we rallied around, okay, who are the most vulnerable groups? We have to make sure we keep them safe. Even if we think about the rollout of the of vaccines as well, it's like, okay, we need to make sure the health workers are, you know, taken care of, and then who are the marginalized groups and doing it like that. So it's interesting that when society wants to, we, we actually can come together yes. and come up with solutions where we identify these people are are hurt you know are hurting now let's do something about it when it's something that affects everyone we're I good was at that just about to ask right. you what do you think makes people yeah. take that step out of their because own because they can see with covid we we have seen that it impacts on us personally. the same right mm -hmm. personally everyone is 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 not um everyone is 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 part of this whole thing when we then talk about racism, mm. I feel there's certain people who don't see that it uh, impacts on them as much. Um, and so if we think about racism and the fact that it actually has an impact on black and brown people or people of color or whatever terminology you know um, people use more than anybody else... Um, and then if you if we start making it a numbers game, which sometimes it you know it happens. I've been in workplaces where mm. it's like, well, we only have blah blah percentage of people, the majority of people, or mainstream. What what does that even mean? Yeah, you know, mainstream. And so these terms, when you start describing people, yeah. you're isolating them. You're telling them that they're not mainstream, so you're less it's than or othering and all of it. You know, so this is the biggest challenge with, with racism. And mm. the thing is, racial anxiety is a real thing. Right. Because when have we ever been taught how to talk about race? You know, nobody wants to talk about race. Um, you know, we, 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 we all are told race doesn't exist. We are all part of human, you know, the human race. And it's true. There's no scientific evidence mm. to actually justify the existence of race. So it, it's, it's, it's a social construct. And so... Um, if I'm defining r what race is, race is a social construct, meaning that it's something we've made up because it doesn't actually exist. Mm. However, the making up of the word race and how we classify people, um, if you look at some of the historical uh, political systems, mm. so if we think about um, the okay American civil era, so if we think about that that era, um, you know there was there was a dehumanizing of people of color. Then, um, if you think about the founding fathers, there was reference to uh, people of different races, and this was particular in the sense when you know describing Native Americans, mm. and so this whole notion of white. Um, was good and then there's these other people who are not white and so you know you start seeing the um, you know writings then and there's a distinction between white and and the othering um, in the earlier writings Thomas right. Jefferson um, 
you know, the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, you know, his writings around that time, um, he wrote that black people are devout of um, intellect and and um, I think his, he, his reference was they don't have the same intellect and, and body or something like that as, you know, compared to white people. So what they were they inferior. What did that on at that time? I think it was just, um, I mean, there was, this is a period of slavery. Okay. So there was already this notion that black people were inferior. Okay. Right. So if you think about that era um, and then think about the time, you've got slavery, you've got the dehumanizing of black people over time. You have, you know, the taking of um, Native American land um, and uh, by people who are in positions of power and influence, right? Mm. And so they can make laws that already show that there's a disparity between the two in the t in the way that they see things. Now that shaped a lot of things that came after that. That shaped the civil right. All of the things that we're seeing now, you can actually trace them back to that time and even beyond mm. where there's this othering and uh, white white are seen as superior and black are seen as inferior. Now that is not based on science at all because it doesn't exist. Race doesn't exist. But the social construct of race, we are seeing the impact now. Mm. If we then go to colonization, mm. which is the British Empire taking over so many different colonies, mainly the developing countries um they brought us education they brought us religion or whatever it is um and i'm sure the intent of goodwill was there but the impact of colonization has been you know a lot of countries are still reeling from that right um again you know there's uh this whole notion that native people are backward they're barbaric there's you know so this we see still the superiority tropes, yeah. all of that stuff coming in um and let's not even get into how people were dispossessed and how land was taken. And so we've got that system and we can see it um, now with Brexit. You know, the, the residue, you can start to see this whole thing of superiority or this um, anti-immigration, anti-othering. Very and preservationist. You, right. Yeah. And if you look at that and who are the people or the groups that are impacted the most, you will see that it's mainly people of color or people that they deem to be second class kind of city. So we see this hierarchy, the social hierarchy there. Um, and then we go to the white Australia policy. I mean, which was uh, self-explanatory in this whole essence of, you know, white is good and everyone else is not white. Let's keep them out. Then let's go to South Africa and we see apartheid, which means uh, separate um, in, in, in English. So this, this whole notion of using a political system um, to, to um, promote prejudice and discrimination on racial lines. So we see this, right? So we see that in political systems. And even though <clears throat> we have a majority uh, government in South Africa and in a lot of these places, the systemic stuff is still there. Because when we talk about systemic structures and all of this, we're talking about years and centuries yes. in the making. So even though race itself, we can argue and say it doesn't exist, it does from a social hierarchy perspective. It's different to say something is a social construct and it's different to say that this is the social reality yeah. that people, this is the construct as it is lived yeah. amongst uh, positions of power or people, you know. So I find that a lot of conversations get stuck on yep. that part. Yeah. Uh, just not to interrupt the flow of thought, 
hopefully this sort of dovetails nicely back in. I wanted to get your thoughts or just some, uh, I guess, just some insight into the notion of privilege and what mm-hmm. that really is in terms of defining our terms, right? And I find that, you know, as someone who, um, you know, tries to open up spaces to talk about this stuff more openly, particularly if I'm talking to other young white men, um, the question of privilege often comes up. Yep. And it's it, it's it's a word that attracts a lot of a very defensive reaction. Yep. How would you define privilege to people that get stuck in that conversation? So I think, like you talked about, the social reality and the social hierarchies that have been created means that there's certain people, by the very nature of who they are, don't even have to think about things. Mm. So if we think about... Um, and, and how I define privilege is I like to define it using dominant groups okay. uh, analogy. So, again, my analogy. Please. Um, imagine a room with an elephant and a mouse in it, okay? So, the elephant can survive in that room without even knowing there's a mouse in mm. the room. But the mouse has to anticipate every movement of the elephant. It has to think about the behaviors, anticipate its every move, because if it doesn't, one step, and it's literally gone, obliterated, just one step. So the mouse survives by actually watching the elephant and anticipating its movement. Whereas the elephant doesn't even need to know there's a mouse in the room. It's not impacted by it. Now... This is the dominant group kind of analogy. So in society, we have dominant groups. And dominant groups um, are the ones that enjoy social um, sort of power and economic power in the sense that they set the standard of the status quo for what everything is measured against. So if we think about dominant groups, when we talk about skin color, white um, would be the you know the elephant in the situation. If we think about... Um, able-bodied, you know, able-bodied people versus people with disability. If we think of sexuality, straight people versus, you know, um, uh, gay people. Mm. If we think about language, English, and yet, you know, um, only a certain percentage of the world speak English, but it's a dominant group. Everywhere you go is like English, right? So that's an elephant. Um, And so there's all these different analogies where we have a lot of elephants. Now, can we blame the elephant for being an elephant? Absolutely not. The elephant is the elephant. You know, so no one is saying that it's wrong to be white or it's wrong to be male. What we're saying is, are you mindful that you can go to certain places and not even know mm. that there are people who are having a mice experience? There are people who have to constantly think about, you know, stuff. And even just talking with my friends, you know, just going to a, a shop... And if I'm doing window shopping and I decide I don't want to buy anything, I'm so self-conscious when I walk out that, you know, as I'm walking out, if there's a salesperson or a Mm. guard, that they can see my hands and that they can see that my pockets are empty. Now, that is not because somebody has told me that. That's the conditioning. So when I walk out of a shop and the thing beeps, automatically I will go back because I'm thinking everyone is going to think it's me. Now that's not because somebody yelled it and Mm. you know, people can argue and say, well, you need to get over that. But the reality is that is the social structure. So privileged for me is that there's certain people who are elephants who never have to wonder what it's like to be a mouse. So So I think, 
um, that is how I'll describe it. It's it's the lack of um, awareness about the uh, advantages and the benefits that you have just by waking up and breathing. Like a lack of preoccupation with even right. thinking about where the source of yeah. that, where the source of your um, power or just your ability yeah. to do things comes from. Um, wow, that's a really powerful example. And, uh, you know, I'm someone who likes to think I understand it, but like that's just a really simple way of putting it. And even just that, um, the beeping example. Yeah. Like just to share like my, I guess my parallel experience there. Like I, I walked out of a shop the other day, very confident in the knowledge I haven't touched anything and it beeped. And I just kept walking because I was like, prove it. But, you know, hearing you say that, I'm like, okay, you know, that is one just very small example of that sort of privilege in action there. And it's like, it's not like I beat myself up over it, but it makes you more mindful of the experience of others, right? Yeah. And that, I guess that's kind of the desired outcome, yeah. right? And, and that's it. It's it's not to say that there's something wrong yeah. with you being who you are, but it's just having an understanding that there's just benefits that you have. Yeah. And for me, I always say to people, privilege is just remember that in this situation, you're an elephant mm. and there's mice. Just be careful and and be like, oh, there are actually mice in the room. Right. And when you know that, um, it's actually doing something about the fact that you know and not saying, well, if there are mice in the room, they must just get out of the way because mm. I'm not going to change where I'm going to step or whatever. And this is the thing. Uh, oftentimes there's a defensiveness. And I think it's also the way we positioned it because, yes. you know, there is a lot of hitting people over the head with a baton, uh, the privileged baton, as I call it. Yes. Um, and there's some people who do have privilege who are idiots too, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> And, and and it's it's vice versa, of those, yeah. right? So it it it's it's not like you absolve people, um, you know, from being, uh, you know, for, for from their behaviors because just like in people of color, there's some who who are idiots, yeah. you know. Let's let's be honest. In every society, you have that, but the thing is, you don't. Um, get labeled you know we as a community of people if one person does anything wrong and I was talking to um, members of the African community and it's like if one African does anything wrong the media talks about African gangs or Correct. African this or a uh, fitting of African description and I remember um, years ago um, I, I remember in, in Perth Australia there was a problem with meth and young, young, young white boys actually had meth. But I never went around calling every single young white kid a drug addict. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, or being, where are the white leaders? Right. But the thing is, when it comes to marginalized groups, we're so quick to just label everybody. Mm. We see that in different parts of the world yeah. where, you know, it's, it's this persona. So my boys are afraid to wear hoodies because for some reason that's been associated with being, I don't know what it's associated with. Um, if you're cold um, and you're black and you wear a hoodie, apparently, and you go into a supermarket, that's right. a bad thing. You know, um, in fact, one of my sons was banned from uh, an IGA because he went in there with a hoodie and the security guard was following him and he was with a group of his five white friends. And, you know, one of the guys asked, 
um, the security guard, why are you following him when it's all of us? And then he was like, I can do wow. whatever I want. And they were like, well, you're following him. And rather than banning the, the kid who was arguing, they decided to ban my son who hadn't said a word. So, you know, those kind of things do happen. Talk about but an I elephant don't look, and a mouse dynamic right, there. But I don't look at white people and think they're all bad. Yeah. You know, that's not how I go about it. But the reverse is often true, mm. you know, for marginalized groups. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm just staggered that that, I mean, it's naive to say that obviously these things are very, they're a constant reality for certain groups, but it's still very staggering to hear that just even many examples like that, just such flagrant abuse of powers in such small contexts like that. And I guess that's, would you say that's why workplace diversity, for example, is important when we're tackling things like structural racism? Because there is maybe not necessarily the cleanest through line between those two things but how you act in your everyday ha- makes a big difference into what sort of role you're willing to play in a more civic or socially minded setting is that fair i i think it is and i think workplaces have a responsibility mm. so you know there's this notion we have when we talk about workplaces that once you get into an office you become this different person mm. but the thing is we bring who we are to work yeah. So if your pet died or if your car broke down, that's the person that's going to walk through the door. Correct. You know, it's not like you just forget, mm. you know, going through difficulties at home, whether it's a relationship breakdown or whatever, that's what you bring to the workplace. And so I think workplaces have a responsibility to tackle these issues. I know from a Black Lives Matter perspective, um, with some companies who were not based in uh, America, so the UK ones and all, we're sort of questioning, oh, you know, do we react to this? Is this an American problem? And I right. was like, it's a society That's problem. That's a very right? interesting And every single segue. person, mm. right, has somebody that would be impacted. But I think as an organization, when you can show that, you know what, we recognize that there are people here who might be impacted by mm, this mm. and we want to let you know that we're here um if there's anything you need um we're here to have those conversations yeah. and create the psychological safety so i think that organizations have a responsibility mm. to create psychological safety and that means that i can bring my whole self to work and if that's the case then we have to then be prepared to realize that a lot of that stems from the fact that we have structures in place mm. that have made it very difficult for some groups to be themselves. To be themselves. It's so interesting. Even, sorry, I mean, yeah. I'd always, <laughs> talking to, with you always makes my mind go into overdrive. But what I'm kind of picking up here as well is this idea of erasing emotions from the discussion. And one of the most sort of, we, you know, there are tropes like the angry black woman, for mm. example. Um, where emotion is seen as a loss of control, is seen as hormones, is seen as this very like hard to reason with thing. Um, and you know, on the flip side of that, you've got a lot of traditional masculinity priding men on being stoic and and all these sorts of things. But the idea that to be particularly white people listening to communities of color talking about race, I always hear this thing of oh if they just said it nicely maybe people would listen to them if if they just um if they if they didn't raise their voice or if they you know if they weren't so angry all the time you know they would do these differently why do you think we remove him why do we why do you think there is this tendency or this desire to remove emotion from the discussion of race because i mean everything you're saying about sort of coming into a workplace and 
you're right. Like you bring all of yourself into the workplace. You might act in accordance with a certain set of standards, but you don't just leave things at the door. You take responsibility to share what you share, but to also, you know, um, to just be who you are with all of those experiences. Why do we? Why are we so afraid of bringing emotion into this discussion? Do you think? I think it's because, first of all, we don't recognize the impact of trauma. Mm. And so one of the things that I've said to people is that I was brought up in trauma. My parents have an experience of, you know, racism um, that they experience. And they also heard their grandparents talking about it. So by the time I came into the world, I was already in a household that was traumatized and is still traumatized. And so I carry that trauma. Mm. And if you don't understand the trauma and you don't understand the experience that people have, you will think and mistake that for she's angry, she's, no, I'm, I'm going through trauma. And the interesting thing is when we think about people, some people with mental health issues or if they have drug addictions, right, we're starting to understand that's the sickness talking. That's what we say, right? If somebody's got, we're like, oh, no, that's an illness. Addiction is an illness. Mm. And so when people are under the influence of a drug or whatever it is, um, they're not their whole selves, right? So it's interesting to me that we can see the difference of that. But when it comes to trauma, particularly racial trauma that that has been experienced over generations, there is no um, permission for me to express the trauma mm. because then it's uh, she's angry and you know she's not reasonable mm. um, and half the time it's because people don't understand or they're not affirming or acknowledging my experience so right. I think that one of the things we have to be mindful of and this is this whole notion of you know being an anti-racist being a non-racist all of it is really about affirming and acknowledging the experiences of others knowing that in might be something that you don't um, necessarily have any knowledge of and Mm. it's okay but you know my experience is real and you need to give me the space to be able to express it and to heal but the interesting thing um, Costa is we are talking about um, you know masculine toxic masculinity and this is a conversation that's been going around Mm. and we often do the same when it comes to women so women when they're aggressive we have another term that we call them we call them aggressive when they're trying to be assertive right Mm. Um, so these gender norms that we've got and then we've got language to describe it but if a man is doing that he's assertive. assertive a woman is aggressive a man is assertive and when black people are being very very vocal and passionate then it's constitutes as anger well maybe that's just how we express ourselves yep. you know maybe we're just a you know we could be um you know in a way that this is how i express myself mm. but i also feel that sometimes you know people aren't listening and so you find yourself being so impassionate about something because people are not listening to what you're saying. But I think that this is all this norm of, you know, um, the fact that as a society, we're probably not used to seeing assertive, confident and dominant women of color. If I think about Serena Williams Mm. and a lot of the discourse around her and how they've described her, um, this is the for me. This is exactly what we're talking about. Mm. Is like she's a villain, um, but because 
Is it because we don't see enough of, you know, women like her who are confident, who mm-hmm. are assertive, and then it becomes something else? So I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding, but it's fundamentally it's about acknowledging and affirming the experiences of, of people. And it kind of brings to mind what you said earlier, like very early in the discussion about just wanting to be seen for, you know, whether it's fudzy or black fudzy or fudzy and black female fudzy or just fudzy in all of it, you know, and what I feel like probably gets lost in these conversations is that anti-racist activists are trying to fight for that for everyone, even those who are in positions of privilege, you know, to be fully who they are, which is not to abdicate responsibility for one's access to opportunity or, or power structures, but it's actually to see the person for as much as you can in, in any particular situation. So this is, I guess that's the thing that always butts up against me where it's like when anti-racism work is equated with being anti-white or whatever it is i turn around and say to people they're trying like you know if i'm talking to other white folks around how they're feeling about this stuff it's like we're actually trying to free us from this as well you know to you know we we're also playing a role if we sort of give into privilege a bit too much um you know yeah, I guess there's a lot of things coming to mind at the moment. That's really powerful stuff. What would you say to people who, you know, I guess to other white folks who want to be allies or accomplices, and I know that's a whole other conversation, but um, who are genuinely concerned about their friends of color or black friends, any ways they can hold that emotional space for them at the very least? I think when we talk about, um, you know, allyship and we talk about um, this whole sense of, um, you know, who we are as uh, as individuals and how we can show up, um, I think that it's important for us to understand um, that our experiences might be different. But I think when we talk about active allyship mm. and being an anti-racist, it's really about putting actions to our activism. It's not enough to just say something. What are you doing about it? It's almost like having a strategy with no implementation plan. Mm. So I think that this is um, you know, what, what people are referring to when they talk about that. And I think that this is something that we have to um, just be mindful of. Mm. And Mm-mm. one of the things that I... I, I often say is an active ally is built for change, not speed. Right. So Great. if you're an active ally... Great piece of advice. Right. Yeah. If you're an active ally, your outcome is about changing. It's not about how quickly things get done. Mm. Um, it's about making sure that I'm putting my money where my mouth is. Um, it's about making sure that we've got actions to implement it. It's it's being a, uh, an upstander, not a bystander. So if I'm seeing behaviors that are bad, am I calling that out? Mm. And I know that there's this you know balance between um, how do I call out bad behavior? You know, is there a balance between being seen as oh you know this is none of your business mm. or whatever? But I think as a society, until we are accountable to each other until we're actually calling those things out, we're actually not going to see the actions that we want. And I think that any form of activism, whether it is what we saw last year with the, you know, black squares and, you know, um, blackout Tuesday and all of that. And I think that was an interesting thing. Yeah. 
because we saw a lot of these black squares and, you know, Blackout Tuesday and all. And there were so many people who did that. And my question to them was, it's great that you're, you know, uh, doing this out of solidarity, mm. but how are you continuing the conversation? Right. And what have you done to this point? So, p you know, people were saying Black Lives Matter and hashtagging. And I was I'm saying to and encouraging them and I was saying, okay, can you tell me which black life matter matter, which black life matters to you? Right. Who in your community, in your world mm, matters? Because mm. until you can identify that and be that ally for that person, right. it's so easy to have a hashtag. And I think this was the biggest challenge for me mm. as a woman of color when I saw all of it. And I'm like, but you're still behaving the same way. Right. So if this matters to you, how do I matter to you? Because I am right here in front of you. Yeah. And it's one thing for you to just go home and have this little black square, mm. but you're treating me differently. Right. So how do I matter? And until you can answer that, until you can look at the people around you mm. and see this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm changing, uh, I am not going to say those jokes. I am going to be sensitive. I'm going to call out my friends. Yeah. I'm actually going to provide people with the opportunity of learning. I'm going to learn. I'm not going to expect to be taught by the people that are experiencing this. So, you know, mm. society often puts the burden on educating yes. the majority on the minority. Yep. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to show up and I'm going to actually commit to the process knowing that it might take time um, and not expect um, the privilege of not having to care and somebody else is doing the work Taking, for Doing me. the legwork. That's so interesting. And, you know, yeah, the, the black square I think of as a bit of a black mirror in that it really reflects back to it reflected back to a lot of us um kind of our own sort of both assumptions and intentions at at the same time and you know because i guess my the gap in my knowledge in sort of the legacy of that particular form of online uh activism if you want to call it that or slacktivism um is just like how do we know how far people have actually taken the 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 necessary action as a result of putting that black square up just as an example you know and f from what you're saying a lot of that is about actually knowledge about the people who are doing that seeing strangers doing that i, I could look at a piece uh, like someone else posting a black square and not know a thing about them you know how do i know that they've changed or how do i know what they've actually what action they've committed to as a result of that and i guess how how can we sort of is it about declaring your intention as well alongside that and using your social media to do more observably anti-racist kind of things as well or is it just about getting to know the people that are doing that and kind of understanding for yourself and making that judgment and not necessarily making a sweeping generalization one way or the other. I, I don't know. I, I'm a bit of in a, a mess of thoughts yeah. there, but I think you understand what yeah. I'm trying to get at. I say to people, let's take the black tile. And if nobody had posted it, if no celebrity that you follow mm. or somebody that you value had posted that, would you have posted it? Yeah. And that's my question. Mm. If Would you do anything if it wasn't popular? Um, or was that, oh, 
so-and-so has done it. I need to be seen to be cool. Mm. I'm doing it because I think even active allyship means that there's consistent things that you're doing. And it's about being afraid to not being afraid to call out things. And, and for me, that square, it it became a sociable and it was like the social media thing. And if I didn't have a black square, then people are going to, Oh my God, I'm so So guilty of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't even done for the right motive. And this is, where I think active ally is different is mm. do you actually understand what that square represents? Yeah. What does that tile square represent to you? And how does it impact the people that are around you? Mm. And one of the things that I say about diversity and inclusion, going back to that, is this is that we t- often talk about having a diverse and inclusive workplace, but you can't be what you're not. So if you're not diverse at home mm. and if you've got nobody who is different or has a different perspective that's what you're bringing to the workplace yeah. so it's not a responsibility of somebody with a title of dni or to say it's a leader yes this is each and every one of us is responsibility so racism tackling systemic racism dismantling those structures everybody has a role to play yes. because it is about your actions it is about your attitudes over a period of time that will create these structures mm. so what are you doing um, in terms of the square, is like, great. That square should have represented for us, okay, we now have an ally. I'm now going to look at you, Costa, and say, you had that square. Yep. What have you done since then mm. to educate yourself, yep. um, to understand what my experience is? Mm. What are you actively what are we doing? actively doing? And if you've done nothing other than just waiting for the next phase, yeah. then how are you an ally to me? Absolutely. Have you actually taken Fudzi out for a coffee yeah. to understand, you know, what can I do? What is your experience? You know, how can I get involved mm. in being part of the solution? And I think a lot of people just stopped at a black square where it's just a black tile on a social media platform Mm. but there's no conversation there's no education and there's no discomfort we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable we talk about getting out of a comfort zone Mm. but when it comes to race when it comes to difficult conversations none of us want to do it and for us as you know people of color we've been uncomfortable for so long Mm. in fact our whole lives are uncomfortable because we have been conditioned to make other people's lives comfortable. Yep. So we don't want to rock the boat or if we do, she's angry, she's this. Mm. And it's almost like, come on guys, we all want the same thing yeah. because until we recognize we're on the same team, we're not going to get the social cohesion we yeah. want. Yeah. And you know, when we dismantle this, everybody will feel it because we'll have a society that's free of what we're seeing now. Mm. People being shot at, people being killed just because of the way they they look. Now that impacts society. It's not just about, oh, these guys are shot. So it's going to impact, you know, uh, Asian people. Or, Mm. you know, if we have Islamophobia, it's just our whole society is hurting. Um, And so until we are able to see that, Mm. we're not going to create... Um, the environment that you know we want and i feel like it has to be everyone's responsibility to do that yeah that's really hard to argue with um uh yeah actually i'll can i share an embarrassing story with you (laughs) um so you know just regarding the black tile as well i posted one right and i don't have a social media following i don't 
really use my social media to speak about much other than just like the stupid things going on in my life and maybe bits about my work. But I posted it because there was two reasons. One of them, Erica Badu posted it. And it, I used it in the very Blackout Tuesday specific way yep. that she did as well. So I was like, oh, if Erica Badu's down with that, then like I'm down with that because I love Erica Badu. And then the other thing that I felt overwhelmingly was the sense of pressure, but mm-hmm. not necessarily to um, bandwagon so much as, oh my God, if I don't post this, people are going to think I'm like I'm a racist or something like that. So I posted it and I felt really weird about it. Um, because And then I started to see some of the discourse around like, you're actually interfering with the Black Lives Matter hashtag and it's blocking all these resources. I was like, well, that's the last thing I want to do here to interfere with uh, people's ability to organize. But it's so interesting to see others that followed suit because I had posted it. And because of, you know, just what I represent to my own friends as someone that is in the sort of broadly in the social cohesion space, you know, that tries to do the right thing and, you know, tries to be inclusive and and anti-racist and, you know, generally keep a very diverse set of friends. Like they saw me do that and thought, oh, because you did it. I thought, okay, I'm down for that too. And it was the first political statement they'd ever made. And this is where, like, and I'm, I'm saying something for the first time about it too. So it was just interesting to reflect on that because I took it down because I'm like, that's actually not an authentic expression of my own sort of activism. I prefer to just try and do the everyday stuff. I checked in with a lot of friends, you know, but I wonder how much of that was, I wonder how much of that is the same for everyone or whether it really just stopped there. And that's what I sort of struggle with. But it was a really good lesson in sort of being true to yourself in how you express and how you advocate for others too. Because I, I try to just do, I try to just live those values rather than show, you know, tell people that I've yeah. got them. And it was a good lesson for that. It was very humbling. And hearing you say that now is like, yeah, like, there's, it can only go so far, but there has to be the action to follow it. So if you're using social media to advocate, then I guess you should also be using your social media to sort of give people a win- window into the stuff you are doing in your life every day. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Yeah. Because that's authentic and it's vulnerable mm. and no one is expecting you to have all the answers. I mean, I'm still learning. Yeah. I'm still, you know, every year it's a different experience. Every day is a different experience. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of learning that ha- happens, but I think we need to be vulnerable mm. um, and not to try and appear like we know, yeah. because this isn't about knowing you will never know enough. It's a human behavior. So, you know, the context, all of that matters. But I think that as a society, let's hold each other accountable. Yes. And let's have the right motive in wanting to... Mm. Um, this isn't about a social media experience. These are people's lives. Yeah. This is trauma. This is experience that people mm. have faced. People have moved, uh, left their countries of origin, black and brown people, mm. to run away from, uh, you know, ethnic um, you know, prejudice and racial injustice and all of it. This is real, you know... A family is separated. And so we're talking about people's livelihood. We're yeah. talking about life or death situations. And so we need to be mindful of mm, that mm. and treat it, you know, in the way, in the manner that it deserves. Yeah. That for some people, this is not just a social media experiment. This yeah. is our this life. This is real life. And I think it's about let's acknowledge, let's affirm, let's educate ourselves, let's, 
you know, be willing to learn, have a teachable spirit. Mm. Um, let's also lead with the end goal in sight. Teachable spirit, that's lovely. Yeah. yeah. Let's have an end goal in sight. And I believe that our society needs racial reconciliation. Mm. We need racial justice. Yes. Um, and we want to see an inclusive society where everybody has a contribution and can bring their contribution. And that's going to require every single individual mm. to actually um, play their part. It's about checking our biases. It is about diversifying the people and the experiences that we have so that we can actually see what it's like to have a different perspective. Mm. And it's going to require bravery and courage to challenge um, you know, perspectives and narratives because until you challenge them, you can't change them. Yeah. You got to challenge them first. So, you know, that challenge is going to have to happen. And I think if we can get into that place, we start to see the outcomes that we want to in our, in our world. Great. Well, I think that's probably the perfect place to wrap up. Fadzi, it's always so wonderful catching up with you. Um, you're a dear friend to all of us here and, you know, mentor in, in so many other respects. So just thank you so much for your time, your wisdom and your generosity with your own personal experience. Um, if anyone is interested in following your work, do you have any public work that you, or like a public profile that you share or I think, any social media? Yeah, I've got, I'm on, I'm probably on all of the social media. Okay. FUDZW is um, Twitter, LinkedIn. Great. You can find me there. Yep. Um, you know, I haven't been as active um, just because I'm too busy You've trying very to, busy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to see things, but you know, I'd love to keep in touch. I'd love to hear uh, people's stories, and um, you know, I think all of us can help create a, a better uh, world. Mm. At least leave it better than we found it. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Fadzi. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Undesign series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Lindbull for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available.